Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Today we're continuing our exploration of the renewable energy industry. Interestingly enough, with a look at coal, we'll have to see what the final numbers come in this year. But it looks like this year will be the first year where renewable energy production in the United States overtakes electricity energy generated via coal power plants. We'll discuss what this says about the investment opportunities available in renewable energy today. And Jason will share his elevator pitch for Vestas Wind Systems. My guest today, as I just mentioned, is is Molly Full contributor Jason Hall. Jason, welcome back on the show. It's always great to be on with you, Nick. I know we're not going to have a lot of time to talk about football, but uh, I'm sure we'll work in a, a line or two. Give us give us an opportunity. We'll find it. <laughs> we'll, we'll find a way to get into it. Uh, but yeah, as we talk about renewable energy, obviously people are very excited about investing in renewable energy right now. If you look at estimates from the U.S. Energy Information Administration, energy uses worldwide is expected to grow by about 50% uh, percent by 2050. That's a lot. But if you annualize that out, that's only about 1% a year or so. So when you're investing in renewable energy production uh, uh, today, you really need to be making a bet on renewables taking share. And if you look at the variety of energy generation that's losing share today, that's coal. So really, if you're buying renewable energy today, you're kind of making an explicit, uh, excuse me, an implicit bet um, against coal. As I mentioned off the top of the show, this year uh, is the first time that the EIA is projecting renewable energy production will overtake coal. Uh, Jason, j- just high level, what has been behind uh, this fall uh, in coal's share in energy production in the U.S.? So I think there's there's really three things that are driving it, right? So number one is is really cost. I mean that's that kind of underpins a lot of it. And it's 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 more it's less. So it's not really. Don't think about renewables as competing directly against coal. Uh, energy producers look at this entire spectrum of how they can generate electricity in the most cost-effective manner, right? And the reality is that natural gas in the United States, our access to natural gas has grown enormously over the past you know decade and change. And natural gas uh, power generation costs have fallen dramatically. The, the, the this technology has gotten better and natural gas has, has really started to chew into coal at a point where I think we've seen uh, coal plants starting to get retired, you know, 10, 20 years ahead of schedule, just because we have so much natural gas and it's and it's so cheap. So that's that's essentially the big thing that's driving the closure of coal generation uh, in North America. Right. I mean, that, that's an important point to note as we hear a lot about you, know, you need the Green New Deal and, and economics and incentives for renewable energy. But even without uh, some of those things in place that a lot of advocates would like to see, the economics alone are, are making a lot of this transition take place. Uh, as you say, uh, hydraulic fracturing, all, all that sort of thing has enabled an increase, an 80% increase in U.S. natural gas production since 2006 and a 50% decrease in price. Uh, and then you look at at uh, a renewable energy, uh, I, as I was preparing for this show, I came across what's called Swanson's Law, which is a, a derivative of, of rights law. It's a, a fundamental uh, effect you'll see in economics. And this is the observation that the price of solar photovoltaic modules tends to drop 20% for every doubling of cumulative volume shipped. And so, obviously, we've seen over the past 10 years massive ramp-ups uh, in, in production of solar, uh, just since 2016, solar generation is up over 100%. So as those uh, scale uh, advantages 
kick in, the cost of solar is getting cheaper and cheaper. And as you mentioned, uh, coal is a hundred-year-old industry, so there's really not that much more efficiency uh, to squeeze out of those uh, out, of, out of that technology. As well as there is a little bit of a uh, a slippery slope mentality that as more and more coal plants are retired, the economics of mining for coal, which is a, a, a operating leverage type business uh, with a lot of fixed costs, those economics get worse and worse and worse the quicker this this coal decline accelerates. Well, and the cheap coal has already been dug out of the ground, right? That's that's another factor. So you think about there's only so many more technical uh, advantages that that uh, coal producers can find. You know, automation's a big thing that that's already in play. The industry employs a bare fraction of the people that did at its peak, um, and yeah, the, the the demand is falling. So it's just the the technical ability to, on top of the the loss of scale, is huge. And on the other side of that, right, you have you have with renewables, um, yeah, sure. Let's let's not beat around the bush. Subsidies have certainly played, you know, and tax credits have certainly played a big benefit in the acceleration. But the industry is, is far more mature, and it's gained from additional scale. And this is solar and wind both. They've gained a lot from adding massive manufacturing capacity and scale that has helped drive those costs down enormously. Right. So that's I think that's a really important factor to look at too is it's simply it's simply getting to the point now where it's cost effective to bring to bring alternatives in uh, renewables in in addition to natural gas they're just they're competitive now right i think it, we're at an inflection point I, I think from an economic point of view when it comes to cost and i think you know uh we mentioned subsidies aren't are, aren't fully driving what's going on i think an important uh stakeholder group to consider is investors i think that we're kind of reaching a, an inflection point among investors uh, on this willingness to invest in these types of companies. We've seen this rise of ESG investing, more and more uh, type of institutional companies pushing uh, these large businesses to get out of uh, these, these polluting uh, uh, subsectors. So one example is BHP Group, formerly known as BHP Billiton, that's ticker BBL, one of the largest uh, miners in the world. Announced this past week, they're going to exit uh, uh, some of their investments in thermal coal, as well as divest some of their other coal-related investments, after being urged to uh, um, by investors. And so you com- you combine these dynamics in the industry for coal that you know it's already less economic. Uh, there are factors that, as coal utilization rates of, of plants go away, it becomes even more less economic. You've got volumes ramping up uh, of renewables that are reducing costs there, and then finally. It's really difficult to find a constituency of investors if you are a coal or, or one of these hydrocarbon producing companies, which limits your access to capital and limits your ability to grow. On the other side, we've seen massive performance from a lot of these renewable energy stocks this year, which lowers their uh, their cost of capital and lets them be more competitive. So a lot of these factors are all working together to make it very, very difficult um, for coal. Now, when we look, uh, so I think one one important thing to note though is all right, renewables are, are cost competitive with, with coal, which has traditionally been a, a significant source um, of energy production. Natural gas is cheap, but as the years go on, uh, renewable gets more and more competitive there. But we can't go all in completely on renewable, though, Jason. And we, we saw some some news just this past week as well about rolling blackouts in California, seeing their first ro- rolling blackouts since 2001, uh, which is related to the Enron debacle uh, for, for folks who are looking for some trivia stuff there. Uh, Jason, you live in California. What's been behind uh, these issues, which actually come back to renewable energy when, we, when you look at it? 
Right, they do. Actually, we have a we have a colleague that's temporary living um, uh, north of me, a few hours north of me, uh, due to the birth of a, 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 of uh, his son. And he, they were subjected to, they have a newborn kid and they're subjected to these rolling blackouts. They lost power for several hours. And the short version is, I think it gets to, right, the, the, the massive, you know, California has been a real leader in, in pushing the grid to renewables. And that's, that's great, um, except for the, the state actually imports uh, a fairly substantial amount of electricity, especially during peak demand periods. And a lot of that, that power that's getting imported uh, is running off of, of, of hydrocarbon carbon, uh, plants, so coal or, or gas plants in neighboring states. The challenge has been that we've, 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 we're at, at this point right now where you know, we've had this massive heat wave going on that's rolling across the West for the past couple of weeks. And what happens, you have the duck curve. So it's, I encourage people to Google the duck curve and check out this, uh, this thing that shows how you're kind of at the end of the day, right about dusk, the, the grid, grid demand is actually kind of at its highest point, right? Because there's still lots of economic activity going on, but people are also going home and they're kicking the air conditioner on at home and they're turning on the TV and the stove and all this stuff's happening, right? So low grid demand is actually really, really high kind of right at dusk which is right when solar falls off, right? You just, you lose that capacity. And be, the, the, because of all of this demand that was happening across all of our neighboring states, um, you know, we had to have rolling blackouts just because there wasn't enough capacity uh, to, be, to be acquired to, to power everything. So it was, you know, it's kind of a third world effect of this, of this leading, leading the charge in renewables. But this, I, this underpins like what has continued to be the biggest challenge for renewables and that's the ability to meet 24 7 demand right the, the the ability to base load as they say uh across across the entire power demand uh, spectrum right i mean it's these constraints that are in place right it's not as you know it's a little bit of a pun but it's not as simple as flipping a switch there's no magic bullet here all these things kind of have have to play together and one of the things noted uh so the study work that came up that came out that gave us some of the background and what had caused uh, these blackouts was from, from the California grid operator CAISO and some analysts uh, from Wood McKenzie. And they had talked about how there's still a shortage of uh, uh, grid scale uh, battery storage capacity. You know, over time, as we can, if we can build out battery scale, that solves some of this intermittency problem. But I think it's it's worth noting that that is a, that's a real constraint on the speed with which we can we can accelerate um, renewable energy generation. Now, this is a very niche situation. There's this big uh, uh, heat wave in the Southwest, but uh, the, the quicker or the more uh, uh, intermittent uh, energy we, we put onto. In, the more dependent our grid becomes on intermittent energy like wind and solar, the higher there is a risk of these sorts of things taking place whenever there's unexpected surges in demand, um, right. particularly just given the, the, the way those things are produced, which is why uh, one other issue I wanted to bring up, which is why we're seeing uh, in some countries like India and China still continued investment, lots and lots of continued investment uh, in coal-fired power plants for, for a couple reasons. Number one, Jason, as Jason mentioned earlier, We've got a whole lot of natural gas in the U.S., which makes our natural gas prices significantly lower than the rest of the world. In a perfect world, you'd like to use natural gas because it's cleaner. You can turn it on and off faster. It's just economically better for, from a lot of perspectives. But not everybody has the, the amount of natural gas supplies that the U.S. has, and so uh, uh, coal is a little bit more readily available. And then number two, the point that we mentioned earlier about the duck curve. You have to align uh, your production 
uh, with demand. So while we're still seeing these issues, uh, or, or we're still seeing renewable energy become more and more competitive uh, with coal, we're not going to see coal totally disappear from the market. And whenever you hear these types of things, right, there's underinvestment uh, in an area because of uh, constraints on capital flowing to it. A lot of people that are value type investors, Jason, might uh, have their antennas going off saying, hey, is there going to be a value play in these companies, these coal companies left over? There'll still be some role in the market for some period of time, that last puff of the cigar butt uh, that you might be able to go get out of these coal companies. I know there's been a lot of value investors who've, who've talked about this sector um, over the last several years. What, what do you say to our listeners who think, hmm, maybe there's some value here in coal? You know, I think I think there could be, but here's here's the real challenge, right? So coal, the coal industry is, even with you think about India and some of the other uh, developing parts of the world, and I think let's think about the thesis there. Let's just kind of underpin it a little bit more. Is you know as much as the global, as much as the middle class in the United States continues to struggle, right? And that's a that's a generational challenge that we deal with in terms of you know income and equity here, on a global basis, the middle class is blowing up. I mean, it's going to grow like a billion people over the next decade. And it's going to be in places like India and Africa and China uh, that, that still have you know substantial coal reserves. And, and they're going to need to have cheap, reliable electricity, right? So but here's, here's the challenge with coal on a global basis. It's going to continue to be in decline because like, you, like Nick and I were talking about, Nick said, use the term inflection point, right? We're at a point where coal is just not really competitive and renewables are going to continue to get cheaper. You know, there's a constant arms race for the, the wind and solar uh, technologists to improve them, to be more competitive, to take market share from, from whoever they're competing with. So the costs are going to continue to fall on a per watt basis. And then you have, you know, we just briefly touched on the battery side. We're talking about, you know, you know quadrupling the addressable market for, for renewables just as battery costs continue to fall and the global manufacturing scale uh, grows to be able to provide those utility scale storage. So it's it's at a point now where you know if I'm if I'm an electricity producer um, with a large with a large baseload plant that I'm not I'm not always you know in the middle of the night right you know um, <laughs> I have all this capacity to generate power super duper cheap you know before I build a gas peaker plant or a, or a coal plant you know it's it's at the point where I'm looking at buying batteries to store that cheap power I can already produce for my for my existing gas plant to use during peak times, right? So, but you you carry that over and you start really digging in. And the point is this, there are so many headwinds that coal faces is that unless you are an insider in the industry and you are investing a tremendous amount of time on a regular basis to know the trends, to know where the value is and know where the opportunity is, this cigar butt investing idea is, I think it's just too hard and too time consuming for retail investors, considering that there are so many great opportunities that have tailwinds that, that are going to kind of lift lift all of the participants and you can just generate far better meaningful returns. I just think it's a wasted effort to generate marginal marginal gains on these on these uh, businesses that are just losing losing uh, any meaningful value over time. Right. I, I agree, Jason. For, for me, definitely in the too hard pile. And it's one of these where the amount of effort you needed to expend, you know, relative to the potential upside you have, probably just isn't there to make it a, a reasonable uh, use of your time. Now, when you mention um, the opportunity that um, that battery storage, uh, stationary storage presents 
uh, for renewable energy makes me think about, you know, you said earlier, we're going to find a way to get football in there. I think it's a Vince Lombardi quote. It's the obstacle is the way, right? So the obstacle to really uh, 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 renewables taking off is intermittency problem. How do we how do we match the generation with demand? And the way is is uh, is you, is you solve this problem uh, of battery storage. And so I think one area to watch over the next few years for where renewables can really take off and become the biggest portion of energy generation on the grid uh, is to what extent can that uh, battery storage supply chain get stood up, be economical, be done in a way that's, that's environmentally friendly itself, right? I mean, if, if, if all of a sudden we're, we're generating tons and tons and tons of emissions from all the mining operations we need to do uh, uh, to, to stand up the battery supply chain, those are some potential hurdles uh, to adoption there. But, uh, but yeah, I think the batteries, obstacles the way Vince Lombardi, there, there's your football uh, uh, quote. Well done, Nick. Uh, um, so uh, one other topic I wanted to talk about uh, uh, today, you mentioned wind energy a little bit, and I wanted to talk about Vestas Wind Systems. Now, that's a company we've talked about um, a little bit, Jason, privately. I'm not super deeply uh, well-versed in this company, but I know it's one you've been paying a lot of attention to lately. Can you give us your elevator pitch for Vestas Wind Systems? I can. And actually, I learned something maybe a month or two ago. I was, I was on <clears throat> Motley Fool Live with Tom, um, Tom Gardner. And um, he actually mentioned Vestas as a company that he had learned more about, you know, in the recent years and really, really liked. I don't think it's actually been recommended in any of the Motley Fool services, but I was, I was uh, kind of intrigued me that, uh, that, that I feel like I found, I found Vestas before Tom, so I felt pretty good about myself there. But the short version is uh, uh, Vestas is a European company. It's, I think they're uh, uh, Denmark, right? I think they're based in yes. uh, Denmark. Um, they're they're uh, unique, right? Because they're a, they're a pure play uh, wind turbine, uh, manufacturer, onshore wind turbine manufacturer. They have some offshore joint venture things that they do. Uh, but they're the global market share leader in this. Um, they compete against, uh, as a gold, uh, gold winds, a large Chinese, uh, wind turbine manufacturer. And then you have industrial conglomerates, general electric and Siemens that are also really large players in this space. But for a number of years, uh, Vestas has had the largest, largest market share, um, and they're, they're just, they've been uh, just, they're just really dominant. And here's the thing, like you go back to, you look at the company's long-term performance, you go back about 10 years ago and you look and you see these massive swings <clears throat> in operating cash flows, uh, where they'd swing from really big, big profits, big cash, positive cash flow periods. And then two years later, they'd be burning cash. It'd go, it'd go negative. And in a, in a way, I kind of think about it like you know, like steelmakers um, that this uh, these really high fixed cost industry that goes through these really big cycles, right? As much as as much as renewables demand um, is growing, right? Every year, you know, wind wind production I think surpassed coal, like in, like I think just wind surpassed coal, didn't it last year or this year? I think that's the that's the big number. Um, but the point is the point is the utility buyers of the equipment. They don't just throw an order out that's the same order every year, and then they add another 10% every year. The swings in orders can be pretty large, right? It can be significant. And it affects the wind industry more than it affects solar, because solar, you have the residential side that, that kind of helps provide some more stability. With winds, it's just one year to the next. It can be a pretty big swing in demand. So you go back to around 2014, and Vestas went through some major changes, went through some big changes in management, and really had to kind of reorganize the business and really refocus on, on like the corporate 
<clears throat> on its manufacturing structure. And they sort of took a bit of an Apple approach, right, to, to a certain extent. They're, they focus on what they're really good at, which number one is design, right? They're, they're innovators here. The R&D is fantastic. Designing the, the turbine blades to manufacture their efficient, you know, the best efficiency. Um, so they really kind of focused on that. And then they maintained core manufacturing of that really high value intellectual property of, of those specific things. But then they sold off a ton of their manufacturing capacity that were 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 things that that weren't necessarily part of the core, and they 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 divested those assets to a to a contract manufacturer that could use those assets for manufacturing across multiple industries. So those assets were better leveraged, and it's it's really provided a lot more stability to its uh, to its to its cash flows. Sure, they still you know, swing up and down. But the difference is you don't see these big cash burn periods <clears throat> when the cycle slows down and demand is uh, for orders for orders falls off. And that's really rewarded investors because the company's stock price has just continued to, to rise and rise from there. Um, revenues have continued to grow. Uh, one thing, that, another thing the company's really focused on is increasing its services revenue. So again, because panel or uh, you know, buying um, turbines from one year to the next can shift pretty significantly, the company realized that a really smart thing to do would be to become a services leader, right? So if you think about these utility uh, <clears throat> producers, the, the companies that own the panels or that own the turbines, they want a good partner to be able to maintain them, especially during periods of economic uncertainty where they may not be so aggressive about signing a contract to buy an, another hundred new uh, new wind turbines. Providing some ballast with uh, with services revenues can really kind of help help balance out the business and smooth out the results. Uh, what Vestas has actually found is that it gets better margins on those services revenue. And if you look at its backlog of, uh, of orders and its contract to backlog, a service contract, it actually has a bigger services backlog uh, than, its, than its equipment backlog right now. The combined backlog is the highest that it's ever been right now, too. So there's really, really a lot to, uh, to like about this business. Yeah, you always like to see uh, when you have these businesses that look like commodity businesses where they can overlay on top either a services type segment or software or something like that that's super high margin that sticks with the product after you sell it. Uh, that, that's always something that I like to see um, as an investor. Jason, I wanted to go back to something we talked about last week about, uh, especially as we look in solar panels, how it can be really tough for these pa panel makers because of the supply demand shifts in the market. And you've, you've mentioned the cyclicality that Vestas has had to deal with in the past in wind. How is the wind market different uh, when it comes to that cyclicality, the leverage in the market between suppliers and, and, and the you know people selling power purchase agreements and that sort of thing? Walk me through the market dynamics in, in place there and maybe how they compare to solar. So again, the, the biggest thing is that this is entirely driven by utility scale <coughs> customers uh, whereas, you know, are still around a third of the, uh, between a quarter and a third, depending of, on where you are, of solar demand comes from distributed solar. So that's like residential rooftop solar or a Walmart doing a commercial, you know, installation on their, on their roof, uh, as opposed to utility scale, which is people buying it to generate electricity that, that they're using, right? The grid is, th that's going into the grid. They're either selling to a utility or that's the utility owns that that asset. So with with wind, it's entirely driven by utility scale. You know, people aren't st sticking a 260 foot high wind turbine in their backyard. So so that's the difference. Is that because of that, 
equipment orders are more cyclical from year to year, right? And if you look at if you look at Vestas's, uh, you know, it's it's operating cash flows. You can see that there still are you know still are those swings. Um, <clears throat> but it's also this is a little bit. It's been a little bit less of a political football than solar manufacturing, right? Because you've seen solar uh, panel manufacturing tends to get stuffed into places where uh, costs are lowest in terms of labor costs. So Southeast Asia is a massive place for, for manufacturing of that. Uh, wind turbines, again, these things are gigantic. This, this is not an operating model where you, where you manufacture them in the cheapest place and then stick them on boats to get them wherever you need them. The manufacturing does tend to be a little more localized. Uh, so they'll have manufacturing, they have manufacturing in Europe, uh, North America, uh, South America, <clears throat> so that they can, so that it's it, shipping costs are a bigger, a bigger portion, right? So, so those are some dynamics that come into play. And there's a little bit of a competitive advantage for these players that are already at scale there because it makes the cost the cost to in, enter those markets are a little bit higher, right? So there's it's not completely durable, but it is a little bit of a competitive advantage that a big player like Vestas has um, because of those of those dynamics of the way that the market works. But again, in terms of cost and in terms of thinking about the dynamics that are driving the demand wind power is cheap. I mean, it's, it's a le on a levelized cost per watt basis. It's, it's, it's competitive with anything in the world, except for the very newest, um, um, gas plants. And even that's, even that, I think, I think five years from now, I think, I think they're going to be cheaper. And again, the big dynamic to me is, is the ability to store the energy coming off of these uh, assets, um, is going to just change the addressable market, uh, over the next decade pretty significantly. Okay, Jason, you know, we talk about this trend, obviously, lots of demand. When you look at the numbers, it points to grow, continuing adoption of renewables. You turn on your news, uh, it points to continuing adoption of renewables. So, so I think, it, you know, it's pretty well consensus consensus view here. You look at uh, the stocks, obviously, the stocks are doing quite well. In alignment with that, Vestas this year up 45% year to date. When you look at the stock going forward from here, where it is today, you still see value, you still see an opportunity uh, to make solid returns on this stock over the next five years or so. Yeah, I think you have to look five plus years out um, again because if you look at, if you look at Vestas by just about any measure right now, it is it is it is quite expensive, right? It is the the operating cash flows have actually, you know, they've actually come down a little bit over the past couple of years just because kind of a little bit of uh, uh, you know there's some increased competition. The company's been spending a lot of money uh, to, to, to grow its, its, its core manufacturing capacity. Um, so, so there has been a little bit of a squeeze there. And if you think about valuations, I, I, I own a lot of Vestas right now, uh, but I look at it and I, and I'm, I, I, I have to look at it every time I look at the price and just say, I have to accept the fact that this could be 25% cheaper in a year, right? Because the volatile nature of the industry, it's hard to predict what's going to happen but I continue to own it because I know five years, 10 years from now, this is still going to be a leader. That services business is so valuable. Uh, this is, it's such a well-run company that it's, it's, it's one that I think is worth you know, starting a position in if you don't have one and continue to monitor and look for opportunities to add to it, to add to it over time. Uh, I, I, think, I think there are better places to invest and benefit from, from wind right now than, than Vestas, but it's still, it's still one of my favorite companies in the space. Oh, well, that, that, that begs the question, where, where, where are those places? So, you know, the question, you know, wind or solar, right? Here's, here's where you go. And I say both. I think, I think the reality is, you know, I own some, I own some first solar, which, which I like because they have a great balance sheet and they're really good in that utility scale on the solar side. Um, 
<clears throat> but really the, the place that I always continue to come back for the more that I look at is who can benefit from every aspect of the, of, of, of the, of the tailwinds, who can benefit from falling costs the most and who has the least exposure to the cyclical nature of the business. And it's always those renewable energy yield codes. And the one that, the, the, the one that always comes to the top of the list for me is Brookfield renewable, right? Just Brookfield renewable floats right to the top. Every time you have BEPC, BEPC is their corporation ticker. Their limited partnership ticker is BEP. Uh, I just, I continue, this is a stock that's also done incredibly well this year, uh, but it's just so high value. They own and operate wind, solar, hydroelectric, uh, some, some transmission. Uh, they're just such a good business. The capital allocation, they're, they're just so good at it. Um, it pays a great dividend. Their dividend growth uh, <clears throat> track record is, is spectacular. And again, you look at that, this is an international business. So you look at those long-term trends, you know, where, where, where the world's population is growing and where those energy demands are going to start shifting to renewables. Uh, this is, this is my, this is one of my top stop stocks, full stop, right? Not just where I like to invest uh, in, <clears throat> in renewable energy, I, I would say, and, and look at the other yield coast too. So you have Atlantica yield, Clearway Energy, um, Next Era Energy Partners. There's there's a there's a good half dozen of these companies that are all pretty solid companies, um, and I would pick any one of them over the best pick in the coal industry any day, just because the tailwinds. And you don't have to waste time figuring out which one's going to suck less over the next five years, right? That's what you're doing with coal, and that's that's why I like this particular sector uh, in renewable energy. They benefit from all the tailwinds, and they have the least to lose when things aren't good. Yeah, so we talked about Brookfield Renewable last week, and I think we'll, we'll keep walking through on this show different of these subsectors uh, in renewable energy so we can kind of give our listeners an overview of the different opportunities in the space and what we think about them and what, what, what's driving uh, the market. Jason, I hope to have you on when we do that. I, I hope to be on. Wait, are we about to? We're about to finish a show in less than 30 minutes, Nick. That's never happened before. It's, it's, it's a Christmas miracle. Um, as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Jason Hall, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. <laughs>